Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Bible Ponder for this week. This evening, we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 19 in Luke. Last week, we looked at the first half, but it's quite a long chapter, and there's quite a bit in it. So um, we divided this one up into two, as we've uh, done in previous chapters in Luke. There are two um, main kind of stories in the second half of this chapter. Um, the first is the triumphal entry, as it's often called, though that's not um, the word used in the text. It's Jesus's entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then um, we have the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Both are uh, really quite important for how we understand um, who Jesus was in terms of um, identity, but also how we understand how Jesus understood himself and his own role, um, because sometimes that's a little bit of a different thing. Um, but these two stories, I think, are, are especially um, important for um, glimpses into who the historical Jesus is and, and how we can see how Jesus saw his role how, as Messiah and what he was going to do. And in fact, Jesus's actions in and around the temple are considered by a lot of biblical scholars as some of um, the firmest historical ground from which to construct um, a historical Jesus, because we're always trying to suss out um, what was historical, what did Jesus do, and what did the early church interpret Jesus as doing, and then begin to tell stories about Jesus in light of who they saw Jesus to be. Um, and, and sometimes we can get kind of further away from events um, based on, on how we tell those stories. But we're beginning to get into pretty firm historical ground. We're also getting into the points where um, previously in Luke's gospel, but especially in Mark's gospel, we talked about this idea of kind of Jesus keeping his identity secret, telling people not to spread word around, trying to keep things quiet, staying up north around Galilee and, and the Sea of Galilee and doing things up there. Um, and that's why he has a lot of confrontations with the Pharisees who, who have more of a presence up north. And now that he's down south, he's going to have more confrontation with the Sadducees, with the teachers of the law, the high priests, the, the kind of ruling elite who, who are down south in Jerusalem and, and a bit in Caesarea as well. But especially we're going to be in Jerusalem. But now that he's in Jerusalem and now that we're entering the last week of his life, he is much less concerned with secrecy and he becomes a lot more um, straight to the point with a lot of what he says and a lot of what he proclaims. And we'll especially get to that in the next couple of chapters as Jesus begins to, to predict the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Um, and, and he's very um, vivid in his descriptions and he's no longer um, telling people to be quiet. He's actually, um, we'll get a glimpse of this here, um, doing quite the opposite. So let's begin with Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. After he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, we know the significance of this for later on as well, where he spends um, the night before he's arrested. He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. And um, there is a massive influx of pilgrims um, to Jerusalem around the time of Passover. Um, the city would swell in size to, to incredible proportions. Most people 
um, or, or a lot of people couldn't even find places to stay in Jerusalem and they would stay kind of in these outlying villages like Bethphage or Bethany. Um, but people who did live there would see it as part of their sort of duty of hospitality and acts of worship to offer um, things to, to the pilgrims, to offer help, to offer hospitality. And so um, having asking for a donkey um, as, as part of this isn't entirely unheard of, but especially if he is a famous rabbi, they might feel actually quite honored um, to, to have a famous rabbi use their donkey. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And so we call this the triumphal entry. It's it's quite a big entry. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke's here has, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and it seems like this kind of royal entry into Jerusalem. There's also um, kind of evoking images of King Saul, who rides a donkey as well um, in sort of a kingly way. Um, but rather than being triumphal, another sort of background text here that the Gospel of John actually brings in for us is um, Zechariah 9.9, which John explicitly um, quotes when he's in Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Zechariah 9.9 does have the word victorious in there, but it's also about um, humility, lowliness. Jesus is doing this not as a sort of Roman triumph, a, a glorious parade into the city as a show of might, a show of strength, um, but, a, but a way of humility kind of showing, again, pointing to the kind of king he is. And especially later on when he's questioned by the high priest, questioned by Pilate, and the idea of his kingship comes up, which is ultimately what he is executed for. He's executed as a king, as a, as a usurper um, revolutionary. Um, he starts to talk about how his kingship is different. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. So here we go again. The, the, that kind of secret, no, keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone mm, is gone. He's in Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. I think whether or not he knows beat for beat what's going to happen in terms of his own execution, I think he's well aware that what he has been doing and what he is going to do in Jerusalem is um, going to get him killed. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. So here kind of begins his 
um, prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he's kind of weeping over the city and proclaiming it's a very prophetic way to do it. It's, it's reminiscent of um, a lot of how prophets would speak about Jerusalem and about Israel, the sort of weeping proclaiming these these sorts of woes that would befall them um, because they don't recognize God coming to visit them. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, by all historical accounts, they aren't actually making the temple itself a place where they would do business, but it's in the temple courts. It's part of the same complex. It's it's there, but it's not actually in the temple. Um, but part of why this comes about is um, for reasons that you could say are good. There are people coming from all over the world to celebrate Passover, to worship in the temple, and they're bringing with them all sorts of different kinds of coins. And so how do you manage um, all of the different currency, getting it changed, getting the correct things? And also, if you have to travel from a long way off, are you really going to be traveling with um, the things that you need to sacrifice for? So you can see logically how you would think, well, why don't we set up money changers to be able to take people's currency, give them correct currency or, or and even temple currency? And why don't we also set up vendors to sell things to sacrifice? Um, because then you don't have to travel with it. So you can see how that makes sense. But but I think a lot of what Jesus is objecting to is, is there are stories of these money changers and these sellers of animals um, being corrupt. There's there's other places in, in the ancient world that talk about these these things as corrupt systems. So they're not wholly there as good and as helpful. They are, you know, beginning to take money off the top or, you know, you can exchange your currency, but for pretty high fees or they'll sell you you know, a, you know, you've got a, a dove, but they'll sell you actually this, your dove has a blemish. I'll sell you this, this pure dove. And then they immediately take the dove that you sold them and sell it to the next person as a pure dove. There's stories like that, um, that kind of point to a sort of corruption that that's in there. And so, um, a lot of that is probably what Jesus is um, objecting to, but there's another layer on top of that. Um, which is that what cements the hegemony and the power of the rulers, the teachers of the law, the high priest, and the Herodians, the kings, um, the, the Herod the king, is that they kept the peace for the Romans. They ruled the Jewish people. They ruled that area on behalf of Rome. And so they um, are invested in keeping the status quo and doing these sorts of things in order to protect a Roman peace, a Pax Romana. And everything that Jesus does upsets that peace. And so a lot of what they object to about Jesus is that he's upsetting the peace, which then upsets the Roman overlords. And so part of Jesus's action in the temple here is also um, about protesting this sort of system that is upholding Roman rule and upholding Roman hegemony over the people of Israel. And then it says, every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him. It begins, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. So they're trying to look for a way to kill him, but as of yet, they don't have a charge that they can do. So even, even in the ancient world, especially under the Roman law, they couldn't just take him and kill him. And especially the Jewish people um, and the chief priests, the scribes, um, did not have authority to carry out executions at that 
um, power rested with um, the Roman governor Pilate, which is why he eventually gets dragged into this whole mess, because the Jewish people couldn't actually um, just take him and, and kill him. Although there are you know stories of stonings, and we get the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts, and we get um, things like that, these sort of lynchings that take place, um, unauthorized uh, killings um, in order to actually carry out a state-sponsored execution they had to get rome involved and so they had to come up with a charge that they could um, levy against jesus that would hold with the romans um, because otherwise they would just want to keep out of it um, and so they can't just be like hey we don't like this guy doesn't really um, hold up in, in even an ancient um, sort of kangaroo court um, so they're looking for a way, but as of yet, even then they can't even trump up a charge because the people are spellbound by him. And so if they were to try and do something, they might have a riot on their hands because the people are on Jesus's side. Um, so they have to tread kind of carefully and, and eventually they will um, put in place the machinations in order to turn the people against Jesus and to also um, get the charges that they need to levy against him. Uh, but we will get to that in due course. So that's the second half of chapter 19. Um, we're really hitting kind of the nitty gritty of who Jesus is and as the king, as the Messiah, but like a different sort of king, not a kind of military king, but still very much political, still very much challenging the powers and systems that, that govern our, our world. And so I think that's really important to kind of keep hold of because often we we say that Jesus isn't a military messiah or a military king, or he's not a king like an earthly king. And then we immediately jump to this sort of kind of ethereal spiritual kingdom that, that's kind of out there and esoteric. And maybe, you know, we kind of don't understand it. But no, Jesus is very, very much political, grounded in reality, the things he does. Um, it's just that he doesn't do it by military conquest or by um, kind of normal human ways of grasping for power. Um, so I think that's that's a very important thing to keep in mind uh, with Jesus. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And uh, join us next week for Chapter 20. Bye-bye.